for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster, Monster Kid, Kid Radio. Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters. Modern Talk and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio! Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and Found Item Clothing. Check them out at BunnySlippers.com and Found Item Clothing. Keep warm this winter, keep your feet warm, and uh, if you're over in the Southern Hemisphere, you can check out the cool t-shirts. Uh, yeah, anyone can check out the cool t-shirts, but hey, it's summertime down there. And hey, this is Black Clock Audio Tales, hosted by me, D.B. Spitzer. Just got back from the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival the other day. Man, was it good. Listen for an upcoming episode about the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival from The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, the other show that's on this podcast feed. And hey, check it out. We're going to have a new show coming up. It's not going to stay on this podcast feed, but we're going to feature it on this podcast feed at first. It's called... Articulate warbling, or that's not rave, that's not ranting, that's articulate warbling, with uh, past guest uh, Zach Ferguson, author, and uh, yeah, so why don't you sit back and listen to one of the many stories we're about to tell you for the rest of this week, uh, month, actually, we've got a month of ghost stories, so, you know, if, if you like ghost stories, you want to listen to them, why not go to pgttcm? Potbean.com and donate. Become a member of one of our various uh, cults or uh, fan cults. We've got the t-shirt cult, we've got the beer cult, we've got the advert cult, and then we've got the spectral cult for people who just want their names and just want to donate a buck a month. I mean, hey, that's pretty cool. And you can always check us out at pgttcm.com, pgttcm.potbean.com. We're on Facebook, we're on Stitcher, I think we're on Spotify. Uh, We are on Instagram, and we are on Twitter, even though eh, I don't really use it. Thank you so much, and hey, ghost stories, rate, review, subscribe! The Burglar's Ghost I'm not an imaginative man, and no one who knows me can say I have ever indulged in sentimental ideas upon any subject. I am rather predisposed, in fact, to look at everything from a purely practical standpoint and this quality has been further developed in me by the fact that for twenty years I have been an active member of the detective police force at Westford, a large town in one of our most important manufacturing districts. A policeman, as most people will readily believe, has to deal with so much practical life that he has small opportunity for developing other than practical qualities and he is more apt to believe in tangible things than in ideas of somewhat superstitious nature. However, I was once under the firm conviction that I had been largely helped up the ladder of life by the ghost of a once well-known burglar. 
i have told the story to many and have heard it commented upon in various fashions whether the comments were satirical or practical it made no difference to me i had a firm faith at that time in the truth of my tale eighteen years ago i was a plain-clothes officer at westford i was then twenty-three years of age and very anxious about two matters first and foremost i desired promotion second i wished to be married of course i was more eager about the second than the first because my sweetheart alice moore was one of the prettiest and cleverest girls in the town but i put promotion first for the simple reason that with me promotion must come before marriage knowing this i was always on the lookout for a chance of distinguishing myself and i paid much attention to my duties that my superiors began to notice me and foretold a successful career for me in the future one evening in the last week of september eighteen seventy three i was sitting in my lodgings wondering what i could do to earn the promotion which i so earnestly wished for things were quiet just then in westford and i am afraid i half wished that something dreadful might occur if i only could have a share in it i was pursuing this train of thought when suddenly i heard a voice say good evening officer i turned sharply around it was almost dusk and my lamp was not lighted for all that i could see clearly enough a man who was sitting by a chest of drawers that stood between the door and the window his chair stood between the drawers and the door and i concluded that he had quietly entered my room and seated himself before addressing me good evening i replied i didn't hear you come in he laughed when i said that a low chuckling rather sly laugh no he said i dare say not officer i'm a very quiet sort of person you might say in fact noiseless just so i looked at him narrowly feeling considerably surprised and astonished at his presence he was a thickly built man with a square face and heavy chin his nose was small but aggressive his eyes were little and overshadowed by heavy eyebrows i could see them twinkle when he spoke as for his dress it was in keeping with his face he wore a rough suit of woolen or frieze a thick gaily colored belcher neckerchief encircled his bowl-like throat and in his big hands he continually twirled and twisted a fur cap made apparently out of the skin of some favorite dog as he sat there smiling at me and saying nothing it made me feel uncomfortable what do you want with me i asked just a little matter of business he answered you should have gone to the office i said we're not supposed to do business at home right you are governor he replied but i wanted to see you it is you that's got to do my job if i had seen the superintendent he might have put somebody else on it that wouldn't have suited me you see officer you're young and naturally eager for promotion eh what is it you want i inquired again ain't you eager to be promoted he reiterated ain't you now officer i saw no reason why i should conceal the fact even from this strange visitor i admitted that i was eager for promotion ah he said with a satisfied smile i'm glad of that it'll make you all the keener now officer you listen to me i'm a-goin to put you on to a nice little job 
Ah, I dare say you'll be a sergeant before long. You will. You'll be complimented and praised for your clever conduct in this affair. Mark my words if you ain't. Out with it, I said, fancying I saw through the man's meaning. You're going to split on some of your pals, I suppose, and you want a reward. He shook his head. A reward, he said, wouldn't be no use to me at all. No, not if it was a thousand pounds. No, it ain't nothing to do with reward. But now, officer, did you ever hear of a light-toed Jim? Light-toed Jim? I should have been a poor detective if I had not. Why, the man under that sobriquet was one of the cleverest burglars and thieves in England, and had enjoyed such a famous career that his name was a household word. At that moment there was an additional interest attached to him. He had been convicted of burglary at the North Minister Assizes in 1871, and sentenced to ten years' penal servitude. After serving nearly two years of his time, he escaped from Portland, getting away in such clever fashion that he had never been heard of since. Where he was, no one could say, but lately there had been a strong suspicion among the police that Light-Toed Jim was at its old tricks again. Light-Toed Jim, I repeated. I should think so. Why, what do you know about him? He smiled and nodded his head. Light-Toed Jim, said he, is in Westford at this eridanical moment. Listen to me, officer. Light-Toed Jim is a-goin' to crack a crib tonight. Said crib is the mansion of Miss Singleton, that a rich old lady as lives out on Mapleton Road. You know her, awfully rich, with naught but women servants and animals about the place. There's some very valuable plate there. That's what Light-Toed Jim's after. He'll get in through the scullery window about 1 a.m., then he'll pass through the back and front kitchens and into the butler's pantry. Only it's a butleress, cause there ain't no men at all, and there he'll set to work on the safe. Some of his late pals in Portland gave him the tip about this air job. How did you come to hear of it? I asked. Never mind, Governor. You wouldn't understand. Now, I want you to be up there tonight to nab light-toed Jim red-handed, so to speak. It'll mean promotion for you, and it'll suit me down to the ground. You wants to be about and to watch him enter, then follow him and dog him. And he be armed, officer, for Jim'll fight like a tiger if you don't draw his teeth first. Now look here, my man, said I. This is all very well, but it's all irregular. You must tell me who you are and how you come to be in light-toed Jim's secrets, and I'll put it down in black and white. I turned away from him to get my writing materials. I was not a half a minute with my back to him, but when I turned around he was gone. The door was shut, but I had heard no sound from it either opening or shutting. Quick as I thought I darted to it, tore it wide open, and looked down the narrow staircase. There was no one there. I ran hastily downstairs into the passage and found my landlady, Mrs. Mariner, standing at the open door with a female friend. Mrs. Mariner, I said, breaking in upon their conversation, which way did that man go who came downstairs just now? Mrs. Mariner looked at me strangely. There ain't been no man come downstairs, Mr. Parker, said she. Leastways, not this good three-quarters of an hour, 
which me and Mrs. Higgins ere as have come out to a taken airing. Her having been ironing all this blessed day has been standing air all the time and ain't never seen a soul. Nonsense, I said. A man came down from my room just now. The man you send up twenty minutes since. Mrs. Mariner looked at me with an expression betokening the most profound astonishment. Mrs. Higgins sighed deeply. Mr. Parker, said Mrs. Mariner, I'm sorry to say it, sir, but you're either intoxicated or else you're a sickening for brain fever, sir. There ain't no person entered this door, in or out, for nigh on to an hour, as me and Mrs. Higgins here will take our Bible oaths on. I went upstairs and looked in the rooms on either side of mine. The man was not there. I looked under my bed, and of course he was not there. He must have gone downstairs. But then the women must have seen him. There was only one door to the house. I gave it up in despair and began to smoke my pipe. By the time I had drawn the last whiff, I decided that if anyone was intoxicated, it was probably Mrs. Mariner and Mrs. Higgins, and that my strange visitor had departed by the door. I was not going to believe that he had anything supernatural about him. I had no duty that night, and as the hours wore on, I found myself stern in my resolve to go up to Mrs. Singleton's house and see what I could make out of my informant's story. It was my opinion that my late visitor was a whilom pal of light-toed Jim, and that having become aware of the latter's plot, he had, for some reason of his own, decided to split on his old chum. Thieves' disagreement is an honest man's opportunity, and I determined to solve the truth of the story told me. Lest it should come to nothing, I decided not to report the matter to my chief. If I could really capture light-toed Jim, my success would be all the more brilliant by being suddenly sprung upon the authorities. I made my plan of action rapidly. I took a revolver with me and went up to Mrs. Singleton's house. Fortunately, I knew the housekeeper there, a middle-aged, strong-minded woman, not easily frightened, which was a good thing. To her I communicated such information as I considered necessary. She consented to conceal me in the room where the safe stood. There was a cupboard close by the safe from which I could command a full view of the burglar's operations and pounce upon him at the right moment. If only my information was to be relied upon— there was every chance of my capturing the famous burglar. Soon after midnight, when the house was all quiet, I went to the pantry and got into the cupboard, locking myself in. There were two openings in the panel, through which of either I was able to command a full view of the room. My position was somewhat cramped, but the time soon passed away. My mind was principally occupied in wondering if I was really about to have a chance of distinguishing myself. Somehow, there was an air of unreality about the events of the evening which puzzled me. Suddenly I heard a sound which put me on the alert at once. It was nothing more than the creaking of a board or opening of a door would make in a quiet house, but it sounded intensified to my expectant ears. I drew myself up against the door of the cupboard and placed my eye to the opening of the panel. I had oiled the key of the door and kept my fingers upon it in readiness to spring upon the burglar at the proper moment. 
after what seemed some time i saw the gleam of light through the keyhole of the door opening into the pantry then it opened and a man carrying a small lantern came gently into the room at first i could see nothing of his face but when my eyes grew accustomed to the hazy light i saw that i had been rightly informed and that the burglar was indeed no other than the famous light-toed jim as i stood there watching him i could not help admiring the cool fashion in which he went to work he went over to the window and examined it he tried the door of the cupboard in which i stood concealed then he locked the door of the pantry and turned his attention to the safe he set his lamp on a chair before the lock and took from his pocket as neat and pretty a collection of tools as i ever saw with these he went quietly and swiftly to work light-toed jim was a somewhat slimly built fellow with little muscular development about him while i'm a big man with plenty of bone and sinew if matters had come to a fight between us i could have done what i pleased with him but i knew that jim would not chance a fight somewhere about him i felt sure there was a revolver which he would use on the least provocation my plan therefore was to wait until his back was bent over the lock of the safe then to open the cupboard door noiselessly and fall bodily upon him pinning him to the ground beneath me before long the moment came he was working away steadily at the lock his whole attention concentrated on the job the slight noise of his drill was sufficient to drown the faint click of the key in the cupboard door i turned it quickly and tumbled right upon him driving the tool out of his hands and tumbling him into a heap at the front of the safe he uttered an exclamation of rage and astonishment as he went down and immediately began to wriggle under me like an eel as i kept him down with one hand i tried to pull out the handcuffs with the other this somewhat embarrassed me and the burglar profited by it to pull out a sharp knife he had worked himself around on his back and before i realized what he was after he was hacking furiously at me with his keen dagger-like blade then i realized that we were going to have a fight for it and prepared myself he tried to run the knife into my side i warded it off but the blade caught the fleshy part of my left arm and i felt a warm stream of blood spurt out that maddened me and i seized one of the steel drills laying near at hand and hit my man with such a blow over the temple that he collapsed at once and lay as if dead i put the handcuffs on him instantly and to make matters still more certain i secured his ankles then i rose and looked at my arm the knife had made a nasty gash and the blood was flowing freely but it was not serious and when the housekeeper who had just then appeared on the scene had bandaged it i went out and secured the help of the first policeman i met in conveying light-toed jim to the office i felt a proud man when i made my report to the inspector light-toed jim said he what james bland nonsense parker but i took him to the cells where jim was being attended to by the doctor you're right parker he said that's the man well this'll be a fine thing for you after a time feeling a little exhausted i went home to try and get some sleep the surgeon had attended to my arm and told me it was but a superficial wound it felt sore in spite of that
i had no sooner reached my lodgings than i saw sitting in my easy chair the strange man who had called upon me earlier in the evening he rose to his feet when i entered i stared at him in utter astonishment well governor said he i see you've done it you've got him square and fair i reckon yes i said ah he said with a sigh of complete satisfaction then i'm satisfied yes i don't know as how there's aught more i could say i reckon that's how light toed jim and me's quits i was determined to find out who this man was this time sit down i said there's a question or two i must ask you just let me get my coat off and i'll talk to you i took my coat off and went over to the bed to lay it down now then i began and looked around at him i said no more being literally dumbstruck the man was gone i began to feel uncomfortable i ran hastily downstairs only to find the outer door locked and bolted as i had left it a few minutes before i went back utterly nonplussed for an hour i pondered the matter over but could neither make head nor tail of it when i went down to the office next morning i was informed that the burglar wanted to see me i went to his cell where he was lying in bed with his head bandaged i had hit him pretty hard as it turned out and it was probable he would have to lie on the sick list for some days well governor said he you'd the best of me last night you hit me rather hard that time i was sorry to have to do it my man i answered you would have stabbed me if you could yes he said i should but i say governor come a bit closer i want to ask you a question how did you know i was on that little job last night for s'elp me there wasn't a soul knew a breath about it but myself i hadn't no pals never talked to nobody about it never thought aloud about it as i knows on how came you to spot it governor there was no one else in the cell with us and i thought i might find out something about my mysterious visitor the night before it was a pal of yours who gave me the information i said can't be governor no use telling me that i ain't got no pals leastways not in this job did you ever know a man like this i described my visitor as i proceeded light-toed jim's face assumed an expression of real terror whatever color was in it faded away i never saw a man look more thoroughly frightened yes yes he said eagerly in course i know who it is why that's barksy bill as i'd pal with at one time and what did he say governor that he owed me a grudge that we was quits at last right you are cause he did owe me a grudge i treated bill very shabby very shabby indeed and he swore solemn he'd have his revenge on ye governor what you see wasn't barksy bill at all but his ghost cause barksy bill's been dead and buried this three year i was naturally very much exercised in my mind over this weird development of the fair and i used to think about it long after light-toed jim had once more retired into the seclusion of portland while he was in charge at westford i tried more than once to worm some more information out of him about the defunct barksy bill but with no success he would say no more than that bill was dead and buried this three year and with that i had to be content 
gradually i came to have a firm belief that i had indeed been visited by bark bill's ghost and i often told the story to brother officers and sometimes got well laughed at that however mattered little to me i felt sure that any man who had gone through the same experience would have had the same beliefs of course i got my promotion and was soon afterward married things went well with me and i was lifted from one step to another in my secret mind i was always sure i owed my first rise to the burglar's ghost and i should have continued to think so but for an incident which occurred just five years after my capture of light-toed jim i had occasion to travel to sheffield from westford and had to change trains at leeds the carriage i stepped into was occupied by a solitary individual who turned his face to me as i sat down though dressed in more respectable fashion i immediately recognized the man who had visited me so mysteriously at my lodgings my first feeling was one of fear and i dare say my face showed it for the man laughed hello governor said he i see you knew me as soon as you come in you owes a deal to me governor now don't ye eh look here my man i said i've been taking you for a ghost these five years past now just tell me how you got in and out of my room that night will you he laughed long and loud at that a ghost said he well if that ain't a good urn why easy enough governor i was a lodging for a day or two in the same house it was easy enough when you know how to open a door very quiet and slip out too but i followed you sharp and looked for you ay governor but you looked down and i'd gone up you should have come up to the attics and there you'd have found me so you took me for a ghost well i'm blowed i told him what light-toed jim had said in the cell ay said he i dare say governor you see twas this way it weren't jim's fault i wasn't dead he tried to murder me governor he did and left me a lion for dead so i says to myself when i comes round that i'd pay him out sooner or later but after that i quit the profession jim's nasty conduct havin made me sick of it so i went in for honest work at my old trade which was draining and pipe repairing i was on a job of that sort in westford near miss singleton's house when i seed light-toed jim i had a idea what he was up to havin heard of the plate and i watches him one or two nights and gets a notion ow he was going to work the job then o course you bein an officer and close at hand i splits on him and that's all but you had got the time and details correct oh why of course governor i was an old hand served many years at portland i have and i knew just how jim would work it after seeing his preliminary observations but a ghost ha 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 why governor you must have been very green young officer in them days perhaps i was at any rate i learned a lesson from the seat of aunt barksey bill namely that in searching a house it is always advisable to look up as well as down end of story four A phantom toe i'm not a superstitious man far from it but despite all my efforts to the contrary i could not help thinking directly i had taken a survey of my chamber 
that I should never quit it without going through a strange adventure. There was something in its immense size, heaviness and gloom that seemed to annihilate at one blow all my resolute skepticism as regards supernatural visitations. It appeared to me totally impossible to go into that room and disbelieve in ghosts. The fact is, I had incautiously partaken at supper of that favorite Dutch dish, sauerkraut, and I suppose it had disagreed with me and put strange fancies into my head. But this be as it may, I only know that after parting with my friend for the night, I gradually worked myself up into such a state of fidgetness that at last I wasn't sure whether I had become a ghost myself. Supposing, ruminated I, supposing the landlord himself should be a practical robber and should have taken the lock and bolt from off this door for the purpose of entering here in the dead of night abstracting all my property and perhaps murdering me i thought the dog had a very cutthroat air about him now i had never had any such idea until that moment for my host was a fat all dutchmen are fat stupid-looking fellow who I don't believe had sense enough to understand what a robbery or murder meant. But somehow or other, whenever we have anything really to annoy us, and certainly it was not pleasant to go to bed in a strange place without being able to fasten one's door, we are sure to aggravate it by myriads of chimeras of our own brain. So, on the present occasion, in the midst of a thousand disagreeable reveries, some of the most wild absurdity, I jumped very gloomily into bed, having first put out my candle, for total darkness is far preferable to its flickering, ghostly light, which transformed rather than revealed objects, and soon fell asleep, perfectly tired out with my day's writing. How long I lay asleep I don't know, but I suddenly awoke from a disagreeable dream of cutthroats, ghosts, and long winding passages in a haunted inn an indescribable feeling such as i never before experienced hung upon me it seemed as if every nerve in my body had a hundred spirits tickling it and this was accompanied by so great a heat that inwardly cursing mine's host sauerkraut and wondering how the dutchman could endure such a poison i was forced to sit up in bed to cool myself the whole of the room was profoundly dark excepting at one place where the moonlight, falling through a crevice in the shutters, threw a straight line about an inch or so thick upon the floor, clear, sharp, and intensely brilliant against the darkness. I leave you to conceive my horror when, upon looking at this said line of light, I saw there a naked human toe, nothing more. For the first instant I thought the vision must be some effect of moonlight, then that I was only half awake and could not distinctly see so i rubbed my eyes two or three times and looked again still there was the accursed thing plain distinct immovable marble-like in its fixedness and rigidity but in everything else horribly human i am not an easily frightened man no one who has travelled so much and seen so much has been exposed to so many dangers as i can be but there was something so mysterious and unusual in the appearance of this single toe that for a short time I could not think what to be at, so I did nothing but stare at it in a state of utter bewilderment. At length, however, as the toe did not vanish under my steady gaze, 
I thought I might as well change my tactics, and remembering that all midnight invaders, be they thieves, ghosts, or devils, dislike nothing so much as a good noise, I shouted out in a loud voice, Who's there? The toe immediately disappeared in the darkness. Almost simultaneously with my words, I leapt out of bed and rushed towards the place where I had beheld the strange appearance. The next instant I ran against something and felt an iron grip round my body. After this I have no distinct recollection of what occurred, excepting that a fearful struggle ensued between me and my unseen opponent, that every now and then we were violently hurled to the floor, from which we always rose again in an instant, locked in a deadly embrace, that we tugged and strained and pulled and pushed, I in the convulsive and frantic energy of a fight for life, he, for by this time I had discovered that the intruder was a human being, actuated by some passion of which I was ignorant, that we whirled round and round, cheek to cheek and arm to arm, in fierce contest, till the room appeared to whiz round us, and that at least a dozen people, my fellow-traveller among them, roused, I suppose, by our repeated falls, came pouring into the room with lights, and showed me struggling with a man having nothing on but a shirt, whose long tangled hair and wild, unsettled eyes told me he was insane. And then, for the first time, I became aware that I had received in the conflict several gashes from a knife, which my opponent still held in his hand. To conclude my story in a few words, for I dare say all of you by this time are getting very tired, it turned out that my midnight visitor was a madman who was being conveyed to a lunatic asylum at The Hague, and that he and his keeper had been obliged to stop at Delft on their way. The poor fellow had contrived during the night to escape from his keeper, who had carelessly forgotten to lock the door of his chamber and with that irresistible desire to shed blood particular to so many insane people had possessed himself of a pocket-knife belonging to the man who had charge of him, entered my room, which was most likely the only one in the house unfastened, and was probably meditating the fatal stroke when I saw his toe in the moonlight, the rest of his body being hidden in the shade. After this terrible freak of his he was watched with much greater strictness, but I ought to observe, as some excuse for the keeper's negligence, that this was the first act of violence he had ever attempted. End of Story 5